You are listening to show 10 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. You are listening to the Real Estate CPA Podcast, our platform for educating real estate investors about business, accounting, and taxes. You'll get actionable advice that you can use to increase profits for your real estate venture. And now your host, an entrepreneur who happens to be good at taxes, Brandon Hall. Hey folks, thanks a ton for tuning in. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. I've actually got a guest that's going to be joining me on the show today. His name is Marco Santarelli, and he is the owner of Narada Real Estate Investments. It's a turnkey real estate investment provider. He's got some really cool things to say. We're going to be exploring how do you pick investment markets, what investment markets he's currently in, and how do you go about picking the actual neighborhood that you want to invest in. But before we touch on that, a couple quick things. One, pay attention to the newsletter, especially as these tax plans start coming out in the House and the Senate. We're going to be keeping everybody up to date with our newsletter. So we're analyzing the tax changes and how they might be affecting real estate investors. So just pay attention to that. And the second quick announcement is that we've got two webinars coming up in November, one for clients and one for non-clients. And it's just going to be a walkthrough of the tax plans that have been proposed by Congress and how they're actually going to be affecting real estate investors as a whole. If you like the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes. We would love to hear from you. And I'm super appreciative of everybody that has already left us ratings to date. All right, let's get to it and introduce our guest. Today, our guest is Marco Santarelli. Marco is an investor, author, and the founder of Narada Real Estate Investments, a nationwide provider of turnkey cash flow rental properties. Since 2004, they've helped over 1,000 real estate investors create wealth and passive income through real estate. He's also the host of the Passive Real Estate Investing Podcast. Marco, how are you doing, man? Doing good, Brandon. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, I'm a full-time real estate investor, have been for over 14 years and love what I do. And I love helping other people get to the point where you know they have passive income and are creating wealth, just like what we're doing here at my company. So I don't know how far back you want me to go in terms of my history, but I actually jumped into real estate investing when I was 18 years old. As soon as I could qualify for financing, I decided to purchase, renovate, and manage my own property. And I did that with a townhome unit in my hometown. And what's surprising maybe to some degree is everything was textbook. So I was able to renovate and lease up, manage that property and hold it for a number of years. And I did, uh, as far as I can tell, I did a really good job at it. My biggest regret though, and I learned this early on, is I actually ended up selling the property a number of years later. And sure, I made a good return. I made a good capital gain. But the lesson to be learned is that for the most part, you never really want to sell income producing real estate. You want to buy, hold, and accumulate and maybe trade up as time goes on, but never sell it just for the sake of taking that, those gains and doing something else other than investing. So um, that's basically where I started. And then if you fast forward to 2003, 2004, right before I started my current company, Norada Real Estate Investments, where you know, we're helping other investors, I was involved in several other startups and business ventures. So you know, I cut my teeth and had my fair share of failures all of which I pushed forward into building this business, which has become very successful and, and I'm very happy about because we're helping other real estate investors achieve the things that we are doing ourselves. 
That's fascinating that you started when you were 18 years old. There's not a lot of people that can say that. What did that first deal look like? <laughs> I, I don't remember the specific numbers, but if I had to guess, I believe, and this goes back you know, a number of decades, so it's a long time ago, but it was an end unit townhome. Uh, it was not a condo and it was not uh, an HOA scenario. I believe I paid about $40,000 for that property. I don't remember what the rent was, but I'm sure it was probably in the neighborhood of 600 a month at that time. But again, you know, I say my biggest mistake was selling it. Today, that property is probably worth about 400,000. <laughs> so, it, you know, it's, it's worth a lot more. And of course, that's all equity. And the mistake and the lesson learned is I could have taken that equity and leveraged up and really magnified my success and my returns by taking it and putting it into more income producing real estate. Well, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? I mean, you can always look back and say, I wish I would have done it differently. But at the time, it was probably a really good decision. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't regret it. I learned a lot from it and it kind of set the tone and the writing was on the wall. I took that and I leveraged it. I focused on getting my real estate license and looking for more real estate and, and really just trying to build my financial freedom through both real estate and building businesses. Fascinating. Okay. So, so you, you invest in real estate yourself and then you decide that you want to start your own business because you've, you've been in the small business environment. So you start Narada Real Estate Investments and you decide that you're going to focus on turnkey investments. What made you decide to start a business centered on turnkey investments? So what had happened is in late 2003, I got involved with some boot camps or workshops, whatever you want to call it, along with literally thousands of other real estate investors that were buying into these $15,000, $25,000, and ultimately $35,000 boot camps that were being hosted around the country. And in the process of investing myself, investors were coming to me and saying, hey, Marco, where are you finding these deals? How are you negotiating it? How are you analyzing the numbers? How are you putting it all together? And really, all that just led up to the question of, hey, can you help me? Can you help me find some deals? Or, or you know, do you want a partner or this or that? And so that was the light bulb moment. And that's when I decided to start offering other investors at that time. It was just through networking, through these workshops and boot camps, deals that I was coming across. And so I had enough deal flow being focused on this full time that I was able to share. In the very, very beginning, I was actually charging clients. In other words, I didn't even call them clients at the time, but basically the other investors call them customers, I was charging them a finder's fee that started at 2,500 and then it ultimately worked up to, I think about five or 7,000, depending on the size of the deal. But I quickly flipped that around and turned the model into a free value-added service for these investors who are now what we call clients. And so um, our compensation became, and still is to this day, coming from the sale side or the seller side of the equation instead of the buyer side. So essentially, you know, we are like a nationwide brokerage of these turnkey rental properties. We provide the value to the client and hold them by the hand and help them build their portfolio. So the compensation comes from the other end of the equation, which is the seller. Fascinating. Okay. So really the start of Narada was you kind of identified a gap. There were a lot of people that couldn't find the deals or couldn't figure out what markets to invest in. And you kind of filled that gap and provided them value via these turnkey properties. 
yeah, that hole or that gap or that need, if, if you want to call it that, it still exists today and it's probably more so today than it was back then. And I'll tell you why. The reason is this, and this is probably going to resonate with a lot of people listening. We talk to investors, just regular people every day from all walks of life. You know, they're professionals, they're dentists, they're small business owners, they're, you know, regular W-2 employees. They all have a common problem and that is lack of time. That's the biggest thing. There's also a lack of knowledge, a lack of resources, et cetera. But at the end of the day, most people have a full-time job or career. They have a family. They've got kids. And I, I like to say they have Johnny's soccer game on the weekends. So they're busy living their life and pursuing their career and spending time with their family. So that doesn't leave them the time that they require to find the right markets, find the right deals, do the due diligence and the work that's necessary to build that real estate portfolio, at least not in an easy way. And even if they do have some of the time, there's still a learning curve. They still have to gain the knowledge that they need in order to know where to look, what to look for, how to assemble that team, uh, put together the resources and the contacts they'll, they'll need for mortgage brokers, local providers, builders, inspectors, title companies, etc. So, that's the common denominator that everybody had and still has today. So if you can take care of 70 to 80% of that, what happens is, is you provide a very valuable service, especially when there's no cost involved to you. And that's what I refer to as quote unquote turnkey real estate investing. It's basically an easy way to create passive income and create wealth. Now it's not a done, entirely done for you model. It's done with you because nobody Nobody at all can do everything for you. You have to be engaged and you have to be involved. Awesome. Yeah. And I can totally resonate with the fact that people just don't have the time. I mean, that describes 90 plus percent of our clients at the CPA firm here. We've got clients that are in high net worth or high net income situations and they've got the cash to spend. They just simply don't have the time to figure out how to build their own rental real estate portfolio. And at that time, we actually see a lot of our clients move to turnkey properties and move to turnkey providers. So that, that's really cool. So I know that you're in quite a few markets, but how do you actually go about picking the type of market that you want to invest in or that you want to move? And maybe we can talk about this as like a business perspective, like how do you pick the markets that you want to offer to your clients? And then how do you pick personally? Well, I, I think you have to start off by dispelling a myth. And that is that there is no such thing as a national real estate market. And the reason I bring this up is because whenever you read the paper, read articles or listen to the media, whether it's radio or TV, they always talk about the real estate market. The real estate market's up, down, you know, sales are up, down, whatever the case is. The fact is, is that there's no such thing as a national real estate market. All real estate is local. Every local market has its own politics, its own local economy, its own local business environment. It has its own local supply and demand. So aside from global and national factors like interest rates and you know federal regulations, everything else happens at the local level. So what happens in San Francisco is different than what happens in Detroit, Michigan, which is different than what happens in Tampa, Florida. So once you have that clearly established in your mind, then your focus changes from thinking about real estate as this blob at a 40,000 foot level to something that you can be hyper-focused on at the local and hyper-local level. And I'm not just talking about metropolitan statistical areas or MSAs like Atlanta, Georgia, or Kansas City, Missouri. You start focusing on places like Independence, Missouri, which is you know, a sub-market 
of Kansas City or Blue Springs or Lee Summit or Raytown. So these are getting more specific. And then you could even be more granular than that. You could start looking at neighborhoods within these submarkets of these larger metropolitan areas. And a prudent investor, a smart investor will actually look at things that way. They start from the macro and they work their way down and become more and more specific as to where they're looking and what they're looking at. So I forgot your original question. <laughs> it's all good. So, so when we're talking about the macro trends here, how do you go about identifying, like what identifiers are you looking for to say, yeah, I want to explore that market further. And then I want to drill down into the actual neighborhoods of that market. But just on the macro level, how do you even go about picking that market? And I guess a follow-up question, not to just jump on here, <laughs> a follow-up question would be, are you looking at like primary markets like San Francisco, DC, or are you looking at secondary and tertiary markets that probably won't have an appreciation play, but they're higher on the cash flow? All right. Well, you actually have a lot of questions mixed in there. So I guess at a high level, what I would look for and look at are the things that are driving a market. So the differences between markets are the drivers, where they may be in their market cycle, the median price of that market, the median rent of that market. And when you compare those two, you have at a big picture level, you have what's called a rent to value ratio or rent to price ratio. And that I'll come back to that in a minute here because that's an important factor. The affordability, you know, affordability in one market like the Bay Area of California is going to be very low. You know, you need at least 50% or more of your income to afford a median priced home there versus a, an, another market, let's say Birmingham, Alabama, where you know, you can get fifty dollars to $100,000 homes and you don't need a high income to afford property there. Property taxes is another factor. So these are the things that you want to consider. Now, I know some people's eyes may be glazing over and they're thinking, well, where in the heck do I even start with all this? You know, where do I find this information? It's out there. A lot of it, in fact, if not most of it is available online for free at various websites, you know, whether it's the Bureau of Labor Statistics or uh, neighborhood data websites, et cetera. But the short answer to your question is ultimately this. I'm looking for a market that has jobs and job growth because at the end of the day, that's at the heart of it. People move to cities and stay in cities and markets because there are jobs, they have employment. And if there's job growth, even better because now you have upward pressure on the demand and pricing for that market. So jobs is, is key. Jobs is definitely at the heart of it. And then the other thing you want to also consider is the population growth. Do you have a market that is growing or do you have a market that is declining in terms of its population? If it's minor, it's not a big deal. You're pretty much looking at a stable market. If it's growing, that's good because now you've got demand for housing and you've got demand for rentals. If population is declining and it has been for a long time, that's a long time trend, that could be a concern. And we've seen that in cities throughout the Rust Belt, the Northeast of the US. You know, Detroit is usually a market that comes to mind because for decades, Detroit has been losing population, going from a couple million people down to, I think, about 800,000 in the heart of Detroit. I'm talking about the city, not the suburbs. So I just use that as an example because it's often used as kind of the poster child. But basically, to answer your question, I look for jobs, population growth, affordability, and then to come back to that rent-to-value ratio, when you start looking at properties ultimately within that market, you have to be able to find deals that have a rent to value ratio of roughly 1%. In other words, if it's a $100,000 home you're looking at 
you want to see that the rents come in right around $1,000 per month. And this will change by the neighborhood type, which we can get into here if you want. But generally speaking, you want to be close to that 1%. If it's a little lower, that's fine. If it's a little higher, even better. But that's a rule of thumb. Awesome. And I've written about this before. Every locality should have something called a cumulative annual financial report. It's a CAFR. So if you were to Google like Wilmington NC CAFR, you'll be able to pull up their cumulative annual financial report and it'll have a bunch of demographic information and like the top 10 employers and what the trends are with employment and all that in that report. So that could be something to kind of check out. But here, here's a question for you, Marco. So we have a lot of investors that like to invest out of state. Or sorry, we have a lot of clients that like to invest out of state. But assuming that you haven't invested out of state before, where do you start? Do you, do you just pick a place on the map and you say, I'm going to explore that area? Or do you, is there some sort of like macro level data that you can kind of sift through that maybe kind of helps you direct your search? Well, everything I'm talking about and, and more is, is stuff that we here in our company look at and we go through the same process that anybody else would do or should do. So when it comes to selecting a market, there's really four key things that we look for. These are what I'll refer to as macroeconomic factors. And, and it's really basic stuff. Or at least I think it's basic stuff. The first thing you want to look at is whether you're in a stable or a volatile market. And we refer to these technically speaking, as a linear market or a cyclical market. So if you look at a price trend of this market overall, and again, this could change as you look at sub-markets and neighborhoods within that same market, but overall, if you look at a price trend for the last 10 to 20 years, is it relatively smooth and does it flow in a smooth and natural, more organic up and down motion? So it's relatively flat or is it more cyclical like a roller coaster? That, that will play in heavily because we find those volatile or cyclical markets are typically all along the coast, the east and west coast of the United States. You've also got Washington, D.C. You've got sometimes places like Phoenix, Denver, Colorado, Portland, Oregon. I mean, these can be more volatile than anything else. So we prefer to be in stable linear markets because they provide stability and consistency. Sure, you could kind of hit it out of the park in a volatile market. If you know how to time a market, you can get in near its bottom or early on in its uptrend. But we're not speculators. We're investors. We're looking for cash flow first and foremost. So we don't want volatile markets. Number two is we want a market that has a diverse economy. We want a diverse job market. We want a stable economy because it's not a one-trick pony market like oil and gas driven. We want to see a lot of different industry from healthcare to finance to professional services. And, and that's a key thing. So you want diversity in that metropolitan market. Third, we've already talked about, again, generally speaking, we want to see a market that has a favorable rent to value ratios you know, ideally anywhere from 0.8 to 1%. If you can get more, great, but don't compromise neighborhood quality for that. And fourth is ideally you want to be in landlord-friendly markets where the laws favor landlords. Problem with places like California, for example, are the tenant-landlord laws heavily favor the tenants. And if you get a bad tenant, which hopefully you don't, especially if you're in a good neighborhood, you won't see that. But you could get stuck with a tenant we've referred to as professional tenants. They know how to game the system and they can stop paying and they can sit, you know, without being kicked out or evicted in your property for six months or more. And that's a situation where you have little control to get them out and you have no income. So you're now running at a loss. And so landlord friendly states are places where 
the eviction laws are stacked favorably in your favor if and when you ever have to do an eviction. And that doesn't happen very often, but you just want to pair for it. So those are what we look at at the macroeconomic level. You know, we take that high level approach. But ultimately, we're going to take those markets and categorize them as cash flow markets, growth markets, or hybrid markets. And that really plays into you as an investor. What are your investment goals? Are you heavily focused on the left side of that spectrum for cash flow? Or are you really trying to see greater appreciation potential? You want growth along with cash flow, but lesser amounts of cash flow? Or are you looking for a hybrid market where you kind of have a balance between the two? And, um, you know, a lot of our investors focus on those hybrid markets, but really at the end of the day, it's just who you are, what your risk tolerance is and what you're trying to achieve. I really love that you, that one of your indicators is a landlord friendly market. I don't think that that's really talked about enough. We have investors that invest in anti landlord states and I used to live in DC and you can see the effects of an anti landlord uh, state right there. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. So yeah, so California, DC, I think even like New York City is pretty anti-landlord. I mean, we have clients investing in those states and sometimes they feel the pain. So that's really cool that that's one of your indicators. You touched on something briefly and you called it neighborhood quality. Can you kind of explain what that means and, and then just kind of further that by going into how do you identify a neighborhood once you've identified a market? Sure. So we will classify neighborhoods into three basic types. We'll call them A, B, and C, but you could also take it further and call them like a D-class neighborhood, which is to me a war zone. I don't even know if there is an F. <laughs> and <laughs> there's, really, there's really no formal definition to this. People, people talk about neighborhood categories. They have a general idea of what they mean. So we can have a conversation about A's and B's and C's and have a, a rough idea about what that means, but there's really no technical or formal definition. But we can talk about it in this way, and, and this is actually, in my opinion, a very accurate way to look at neighborhoods, and this is how we try to classify all the properties that we sell, that we post on our website for investors to see. They'll typically have a letter grade of anywhere from A plus down to, I mean, We'll, you'll probably see C pluses on our website, maybe the occasional C, but we don't want to be involved with anything less than that. So let's talk about three of them. Let's talk about C neighborhoods. C neighborhoods, as a general rule of thumb, are going to be neighborhoods where you find properties that are often, not always, but often around $70,000 or less. And again, this is neighborhood specific because that same property that you find, let's say in Birmingham, Alabama, will be probably $50,000 $50,000 more in a market like Dallas for the same type of neighborhood, even though the price has changed. So again, this is just general rules of thumb, general guidelines. But cheaper prices, so often under 70000 in most of the markets that we're in, they have higher rent-to-value ratio. So that's what makes these C-class neighborhoods very attractive. They have high rent-to-value ratios. So they look great on paper. You know, if you look at the pro forma or the income and expenses, it looks fantastic. And they're very attractive for that. But again, you know, you've got to step back and look at the forest, not just the trees to stay on point here and make sure that you're looking at the whole big picture, not just um, get mesmerized and sold on particular property. Generally speaking, maybe anecdotally speaking, but there, there are property managers will, that will tell you this too, C-class neighborhoods as a general rule, have higher turnovers and higher vacancies than having a rental property and tenants in an A-class neighborhood. 
again, you know, this, I don't have specific numbers, but you'll tend to find that tenants in CND neighborhoods are more transient. So they have higher turnover, higher vacancy. And a big factor is that often you will have financing issues. The reason for that is there's not a lot of sales in C-class neighborhoods. So you don't have as many comps or comparables for an appraiser to use when it comes to actually financing properties. So often you will find that properties in the C-class neighborhoods, which could be forty to $70,000, are going to be all cash sales. So there is no financing. You're just coming in, you're buying all cash, maybe you'll refinance later. And that's the end of the story there. So I'm not a big fan of C-class neighborhood properties. However, there is a place for them. Uh, we, we do sell some of them and investors do want them, but it's not where I would start if you were a new investor or you're just starting out with a small portfolio. If you're seasoned and you have a larger portfolio, it might be the right product mix to fold in. So let's jump to the other end of the spectrum here and let's talk about A-class neighborhoods. With A-class neighborhoods, you typically have more expensive quote-unquote prices and often this is going to be over 130 to maybe 150,000. Again, depends on the market, but your rent-to-value ratios will be lower and that is not necessarily a negative thing, even though they don't look as great on paper as properties in C-class neighborhoods and maybe the Bs. But what you have to realize is that you have a premium type product in a premium type neighborhood, lower turnover, better demographic, you have a higher quality tenant. So they tend to stay longer, less vacancy, less turnover, less cost when they do move out. So your lease up is less expensive. They'll tend to stay for three years or more. And there's very few financing issues in A-class neighborhoods because they are usually full of comparables. There's a lot of homeowners. It has a high percentage of owner-occupied homes. So you have lots of comps. So appraisal issues are very uncommon in the A-class neighborhoods. So it's really the great place to invest in terms of quality and stability and tenant demographics. People are sometimes turned off by properties in A-class neighborhoods because the cash flows are are lower. And I'm talking in terms of your cash on cash returns. The cash flow might be attractive because the numbers are bigger. A $130,000 home ideally would rent for $1,300 a month, maybe $1,200, maybe $1,400. But in dollar terms, it looks good. But on, in percentage terms, it doesn't look as attractive. And then somewhere in the middle, you have your B-class neighborhoods. It's kind of like the best of both worlds, if you will. They're like hybrid markets, a good middle ground. And often these are eighty dollars to $130,000 properties. Again, market-specific. Moderate rent-to-value ratios. You will often find a 1% or maybe a 0.9. In today's environment across the country, being in a seller's market with a lot of growth, you're going to find these RV ratios, the rent-to-value ratios around 0.8, 0.9. They used to be 1, 1.1, but we're just seeing a lot of rapid appreciation in markets across the country. But they still look good on paper. Properties in B-class neighborhoods are attractive. They still have relatively low turnover, low vacancy, and they're still easy to finance because there is a fair amount of available comparables for an appraiser to work with. So those are your neighborhood types from A through C. Great explanation. So when I lived in DC, the running joke was if you got a Whole Foods, you're in an A-class neighborhood. So a Whole Foods would go up and all of a sudden everybody would be in an A-class neighborhood. Are there any sort of like businesses or maybe amenities or, or non, I guess, quantitative indicators that you might look for to classify neighborhoods as A, B, or C, or, or even just 
not even classifying, maybe just a higher quality neighborhood than normal? Well, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. If you're in a neighborhood and you see Whole Paycheck, I mean Whole Foods and uh, <laughs> Starbucks, you know, places like that. <laughs> yeah, I call Whole Foods Whole Paycheck. <laughs> so, you know, if, if you see merchants that are upper end, Macy's, Nordstrom, Starbucks, that type of stuff, then yeah, chances are you're in the middle, upper middle income type of demographic. So those are going to be your B's and A's. You're, you're not going to find a lot of C-class neighborhoods in those areas. Percent of owner-occupied homes will tend to be higher or much higher in those types of neighborhoods, like especially the A's. You don't have a lot of rentals in A-class neighborhoods. But the flip side is if you look in C-class neighborhoods, you tend to find the dollar general's you know, a lot of fast food restaurants. You're not going to find any big name brand stores. There will be some, but you're not going to find a lot of them. So you can just drive around a neighborhood or you can go to Google Street View and, and just go around, you know, virtually driving around and, and take a look at the types of stores that you'll find. And that gives you a good idea. But at the end of the day, if you look at that and you look at the demographics, which you can pull online and you look at the percent of owner-occupied home, uh, home ownership, th- that'll give you an idea of your A, Bs, and Cs. So those are the things that we look at to try and classify neighborhoods. And it's not an exact science. It's nice to hear that somebody else uses Google Street View because they always tell you to drive the neighborhood and I always use Google Street View. And I've had people say, you can't really do that. You have to go physically be present, but that's good to hear. That's good, <laughs> it's good to hear I'm doing something right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, Marco, we are out of time. What I can say is that it's awesome that you provide all that analysis for your clients because that would just that would be a lot for somebody that is busy and, like you said, they have all their family activities on the weekends. That that's just a lot for somebody to get down into the weeds and really understand what they're getting themselves into. So, really neat that that you started a business that kind of provides that type of service and really holds an investor's hand all the way through the process. Um, Marco, where can people find you? Yeah, thanks, Brandon. So they can find us at one of two places. Our main website where we have all our properties is Norada Real Estate, N-O-R-A-D-A, noradarealestate.com. And then we have a sister website where we host our podcast, The Passive Real Estate Investing Show. And that's simply passiverealestateinvesting.com. And either one of those sites will link to the other one and you can find tons of free information, eBooks, our podcasts, contact forms, et cetera, and everything is there. So, Excellent. Thanks for coming on the show today, Marco. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Brandon. If you enjoyed today's show, please visit therealestatecpa.com for our newsletter, tips, articles, and podcast show notes. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate CPA Podcast. We'll see you next time.